When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet, and you're listening to What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today? I'm great. I am greater than great. How are you? And welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Thank you. Yes, I know you're greater than... I know you are greater than great. First of all, we're going to talk to Gary Kemp of the band Bandout Ballet, the principal songwriter, guitarist, arranger. He does it all for the band and still does. Was this one of your favorite bands in the 80s? Yes. I have always been a fan And this gave me a great opportunity in preparing for this to do kind of a deep dive into his career. I was always a fan of Spandau Ballet, but I loved learning about what he's doing now. He has a podcast with the partner Guy Pratt, also a musician, the Raconteurs. It was a lot of fun to learn about all the new things he's doing. Like he has a new solo album called In Solo. So it's been a lot of fun to do a deep dive into him. And I was just absolutely thrilled to know we were going to talk to him. It's always fun to talk to someone who actually played at Live Aid. We're going to get into it. Before we do, I want to remind everyone that Holly posts YouTube video snippets all the time, and uh, I'm sure she's going to load it up with Gary Kemp stuff. So what's the process of uh, subscribing to our YouTube page? So just look for us on YouTube, What Difference Does It Make podcast, and then subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are posting every day. You'll see outtakes from all our interviews. And uh, yeah, I'm going to post a lot with Gary Kemp because I want to. Perfect. So let's get into our talk right now. There are fewer things that make me happier than seeing our guest name pop up. Oh, wow. Hi. Looks like a professional studio there. Oh, hi, Holly. Hi, Dave. Very nice to meet you. I think I got a 70s record behind me. Actually. I've just seen that. Yeah. That's right. Because I was just listening to your podcast, uh, your own podcast. You're a podcaster. <laughs> yeah. The Rock on Tours. Yeah. You're talking with, uh, I heard the, the last one with Paul Stanley. You had mentioned the Humble Pie Oh, yeah, that's still there from then. (laughs) I haven't moved it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. We're so happy to have you. This is a total thrill for us. Yep. We have a lot to cover. (laughs) And I know we want to talk about, we definitely want to talk about the new music in solo. But talking about the rock and tours, I just have to know, how how did you come up with the name? I love, I I like the podcast, obviously, and you have great guests. Yeah. Well, raconteur is a, you know, someone who can chat beautifully and i think guy pratt and i have got a a little bit of a reputation for being you know raconteurs i think so i think yeah. someone said well then it's got to be raconteurs you know yeah. and we, we we think we're the funniest guys on the tour bus you know because he's in the band with me with nick mason and you know in the old days people would say you know 
you to just get a room. Now they just say, get a podcast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. And, you know, fortunately we got quite good telephone books. So we, we, we've got a few, you know, good musicians that we can get on. And then as the reputation builds, which is what, you know, you, uh, you start to get people coming to you and, um, I'm a big, you know, I'm just a fan. Yeah, we were getting that. I mean, that was kind of cool. As I was listening to the Paul Stanley episode with him, you guys just riffing on your soul favorites. And it's kind of cool hearing rock stars talk about their favorites, what they grew up with. Well, without sounding like I'm name dropping, but I am name dropping. You know, John Bon Jovi said, you know, I talk to you guys differently because you've done the same. You've had the same experiences. I know I've had exactly the same experiences as John Bon Jovi, but uh, (laughs) pretty, you know, it's just meant to be musicians backstage chatting. But I'm equally as excited to be talking to two non-musicians. I don't know, maybe you're the greatest musicians ever. I don't know that, but. No, No, but we we have a great appreciation for me. It's our love of music that drove us to do this. And and particularly our love of 80s music. So that's what we have. And your podcast is actually closer to the style of our, you know, people, a lot of people when we first started doing it, expected more, uh, a more produced, a more interviewee type of podcast. But we just chat. Yeah, that's the best type, isn't it? That's what people want to get in on. And I think that's the skill to podcasts because they're, they're, they should be like listening in into other people's conversations, you know, where you get that thing where you bought a coffee and you sit at a table and then, oh my God, look who's sitting next to me. What are they talking about? Oh, I, can't, I think I'll get another coffee and I'll just keep listening. <laughs> that's the way it should be. Right. Yeah. We wanted to, to chime in as well because like I'm bringing up Paul Stanley again because it's still fresh in my mind. His new album is Soul Music. It reminded me of your new song. You actually, you have an album coming out in solo uh, when I heard Ahead of the Game. Like, oh, this is like Paul, this could be on Paul Stanley's record or vice versa. You know, it's it's just that love of soul music, right? Yeah, there's it's quite a bit of a soul element on that track. It's not like the rest of the album necessarily, but it's probably more like what I used to do. It's that has a blue eyed soul feel to it. It's very uplifting. I say blue eyed soul because it, it sounds, I guess, where's, where's my inspiration for a song like that? It's people like Todd Rundgren and some of those yacht rock acts like The Babies, which I used uh-huh. to love and um, Steely Dan or something. Robert Palmer, you know, so I think right. there's slight elements of that in it, but you know, the album is has deeper textures, which I'm I'm sure if you've you've had a listen, you, you you'll you'll hear. You know, people sort of said, oh, oh, that sound that record sounds quite 80s, you know. Well, I did write a lot of 80s records. Maybe that was me making the 80s. You know, it's just what I like to write. I love you with such energy. You know, I love you always first to the draw. As fast as you is something I'm ever. If you told me you heard 80s, I would say, yeah, okay. But I thought it was just nice. It was, I've listened to it a few times through and it's just, it's so nice and pleasant to the ear. And it's just so. Sonically pure. Pleasing, yes. There you go. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, if we don't mind me me indulging in the talking about the new album for a little bit, 
the difference between writing for myself and writing for Spanner Ballet and for Tony Hadley in that sense to sing is I always used to write music first with, with the band. But as soon as I start writing lyrics first, which is what I've done on this record, I know it's for me. It can't be for anyone else. The lyrics are the most important thing in the song. And you get to my age, they have to be. Yeah. You really can't sing drivel, you know, and I've got a, I had a lot of things going around in my head, a lot of questions about life and where I am in my life. And the only place I can really work those ideas through is in music. I think if you're writing for a band, there tends to be less opportunity to be autobiographical or personal in your lyrics. You know, you're writing kind of arena rock stuff. You're writing stuff that the, all the crowd can just chant to, you know, but I think you can be a lot more, I guess, personal yeah, it's the only way I can think of it with a solo album. That leads me to the song Too Much on your album. I mean, it, it sounds, was this your pandemic song? Was this written last year? This was a song? That's my pandemic song. All the other songs are written in 2019. So because a lot of people think, oh, you know, you've probably just been sitting around a load of songs and you gather them up and you chuck them together and you make an album. But it wasn't really like that. There's a lot of stuff that joins together on this album, a lot of thoughts that cross-pollinate and have similarities. And it was all mostly written in 2019. At the beginning of the pandemic, like everyone else, you know, the, the news is a bit overwhelming. And there's a lot of artists out there telling us what to do and how to think and how to live and, and writing songs about the environment. And, th you know, I'd love to be that guy. But, uh, you know, the truth is, I'm exhausted by the fear of everything and it's overwhelming. And I sat at my piano one afternoon and, uh, you know, just done some homeschooling in the morning or whatever. And too much came out, you know, crisis on the street, but I can't move my feet. I just want to be with the people I love, you know? And I guess a lot of people might have that sensation during this time. I don't want to see the world on fire. I don't think I could deny its pain. I don't want to see the sun burn out the sky Understand I should be getting higher And I know I should be making gains Sometimes I really wish I was that guy Crisis on the street But I can't move my feet Cause there's too much in the world Too much in the world Too much in the world For sure. I mean, that's that's the truth. I mean, when you speak your truth, it, you're not just writing about yourself. As I'm sure you find out with all your songs, like a lot of people probably come up to you and like, I, I can 100% relate to that. I know what I know what was going on. You know, I know. Yeah. I think like all songs, you, you need to make them universal. You can't be too specific. I mean, you can't mention the prime minister. You can't mention the dates. You can't mention, you know, you have to make, you get an idea. Something comes into you that, that is, that is particular and you see what the universal is that's, that can come out of that and try and make it timeless as well. And I think that's the answer to all songs that I'm, I'm writing that are, you know, dealing with things that are troubling me personally. You try and make them so everyone can hopefully listen, uh, certainly people of a certain age and go, wow, I thought I was the only person thinking that. I get it. Thank you. And the other thing, because I'm this kind of a songwriter, I try and cover them in hooks. So no matter how complicated the lyrics are, you, you know, you make your own little hook stealth bomber and you get in under the radar and you just... That's it. You can you can deliver it to people unknowingly. It gets in, and we just want to sing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. That's always the thing. 
Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm a bit concerned about that theory at the moment because <laughs> I heard a program uh, about how some songwriters right. are just writing for TikTok now, That's and right. they're not even interested in an introduction or verse. They just begin. Yeah. with the chorus because they know that that's what they need people want to sample on on uh, on any anyway eight hey, let's not go there we're, we're in the 80s right <laughs> that, that's a question for later because i am so curious about artists on tiktok yeah. it's a thing <laughs> i'm sure true I, i'm sure it's being pitched to influencers right now as we speak yeah <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk about it album like for an album like like in solo does there have to be a cohesiveness to to each and every song they kind of like uh, you're knitting, you know, putting this fabric yeah. together? Yeah, I think so. There were two strong concepts that were really in my mind during making this record. So one was, and it, these were the first lyrics I started to write. There's a song called I Remember You, and there's another one called I Am The Past, which is I Am The Past is set in a kind of Western setting. It's about an old gunslinger who's no longer as sharp as he used to be. And is he going to be accepted by this person he loves, you know, who doesn't know him any, as when he was the powerful guy? I Remember You is about looking back on myself, you know, and is that person gone? Is it still here? They still here. Am I, am I relevant now? You know, I remember this person who was stronger than me, you know, I've got more life behind me now than ahead of me. And I think that's not an unusual thing to think when you get to a certain age. So I was definitely looking back and trying to join the dots between these characters that I've been, people that I've been and trying to find relevance now. And then one day I sat at the piano and I started coming up with something and a my 13-year-old self walks into my head and he's full of enthusiasm for music and he adores, you know, Bowie and, and Roxy Music and Mark Bowen and he's dressing up and painting up his face and I'm singing this song about me being a fan, which seemed really weird because I don't think that was some ever in my head. And where was that going to take me? And, it, and by the end of the song, it took me into realizing that, you know, even, you know, though those that gang has gone, I'm no longer with those people anymore. You know, I still have that feeling inside that feeling of anticipation for music, that it's going to come along, something will come along. And maybe it's something I'm going to write. Maybe it's a band I'm going to find. Maybe it's going to be a band I see, but it's going to uplift me and it's going to take me somewhere. I've still got that young boy inside me. we we'll give you our hands tonight We'll receive screaming love You're talking about the song Waiting for the Band. When I first heard this, I was like, oh, and actually when the saxophone came in, I was like, is this a Pink Floyd song? What's going on here? And then I was like, oh, then I realized, oh, this is, there's no coincidence here. You have, you've, you were playing with Nick Mason and, and, uh, and some of these guys are in, in the band, are playing on this track. 
They, some of them are on the track here, yeah. I mean, um, the guy who plays sax actually plays with David Gilmour, so there is a slight Pink Floyd connection. And I suppose because what I'd done is I'd put some voices talking on the track. And yeah. the voices that I'd put on were, were, were kids that were interviewed outside Bowie's uh, concert in 1978 uh, at Earl's Court in London. And I just loved what they were saying, and I thought, I'm going to put that in the track. And they s- sort of seemed like they were captured in amber. They they bubbled up like ghosts, and they gave me goosebumps. <laughs> you know, because I was one of those kids kids but yeah so i suppose there was that that was happening waiting for the band was definitely the heart of the album for me but then there was also this sort of there's the song in solo and the haunted which became about a couple that find communication between themselves difficult this sense of paradox of isolation in a big city that we all feel occasionally you know if you come from you know london where i live i followed these two through two different songs but there's a lot of me in there as well you know i think one of the breakthrough moments for me as a songwriter was realizing i didn't have to make anything up anymore that everything i'd experienced was enough to be able to put into songs and you know i can expand on the story and you know highlight it a bit more but you know when i was 20 21 22 i was just making stuff up you know because i know my, my experience in life was was terrible you know nothing it was nothing Oh my God, we're having a great time. We are talking with Gary Kemp, but as we so often have to do, it's break time. We're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our very super special guest, Gary Kemp. We touched on everything on this album, on every every topic. So, you know, what's left, right? <laughs> yeah, I, no, I think, you know, it was, it was an album that I felt like I needed to make at my age. You know, I, I feel the liberation of doing my own stuff, you know, outside of a band. I think bands, it, you know, it's a, it's a difficult concept when you get to a certain age, being in a band. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you become set in your ways and kind of like a relationship or getting into a relationship at an older age. You know, you're, you're very specific. You know what you want, you know how you, you write, you know. So I imagine you're a little more discerning, discriminating. Well, Nick Mason said when, you know, when he was picking the guys who he wanted to be in the band with him, he said, I'm just picking musicians that I want to have dinner with. (laughs) Right. So, so I think that's kind of good idea. But the idea of being in a band for a long period of time, you know, and obviously Spandau Ballet and what everyone, you know, a lot of people say, please get back together again. If you if you walked into an office and when you were 20 in your first job and there were four other people in the room and you started work with them and then someone came in and said, oh, by the way, you're going to have to spend the rest of your working life with these people. That's the only job you're going to have. That's it. <laughs> you think that was crazy, wouldn't you? And you'd be scared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, we're just normal humans. We don't want to spend the rest of our lives together. Yeah, but I was going to say, you said you did not have a life at at 20. However, in a previous podcast, we talked to uh, this guy named Dylan Jones. I'm sure you know this guy. Uh, You were a Blitz kid. And you were telling your stories about being in Billy's. You have some amusing <laughs> anecdotes about like, you know, you step into Billy's and then, I mean, your first impression was like, oh, we need a synth in our band or what? what yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> okay, so, so let me fill in the gaps yeah. for, <laughs> Please for the American audience. Yeah. Right? So the, the UK has become the center of pop culture and that happened with the Beatles. And since then, youth culture, place and pop culture become intertwined and any new movement is built around a piece of geography, a place to arrive and be seen and go and maybe not get in. So 
you know, tough luck. If the ones who get in are the privileged, right? So if you look at places like the Railway Tavern with the Rolling Stones, or you've got the UFO Club, which happens in 67 with Pink Floyd and Psychedelia, you've got the Middle Earth, which is the, in Covent Garden, and that's the new club, and that's Glam Rock, and that's T-Rex. Then you've got the Roxy for punk. And then so suddenly we're at the end of the 70s and everyone's going, what's happening next? You know, who's who's got the bat on? And, and this guy called Steve Strange and his friend Rusty Egan start this club up on a Tuesday night. And it's basically a Bowie night. And they're taking over a club because Tuesday night is their dead night. Suddenly all these fashion students from a really great fashion school here called St. Martin's College and a few really cool kids, none of whom have got any money, you know, and are making their own clothes, are finding stuff in thrift stores, are starting to arrive in this club. And Rusty Egan is playing really extraordinary electronic music because Bowie has validated Berlin. So he's gone to Berlin, Rusty, and he's brought back all these amazing electronic songs, you know, Kraftwerk and Gina X, Nina Hagen and La uh, Dusseldorf and, you know, Telex. And, and all of that's being played and uh, mixed up with some Bowie stuff and Iggy Pop. And this generation of, that I'm involved in, we cut our teeth on Bowie and glam rock. So dressing up is important to us. It's what we do, you know, boys wearing makeup. And we became the house band of that. And that's the beginning of what people call the new romantics. You guys call new wave. And we were all sitting there, these, these kids in 1978, 1979, all determined to create the culture, pop culture of the next decade. And while we're doing that in London, Duran Duran are doing it at the Rum Runner in Birmingham and ABC Human League are doing it at a club in Sheffield. It's just insane. But okay, so how did you end up in this book, this uh, uh, Sweet Dreams is the book by Dylan Jones? Uh, you tell the story that you're one of, I think you're 16. You happen to be yeah. at a show with the Sex Pistols, the Clash and the Buzzcocks. Mm. Did you know ahead of time, like, oh, this is a show, this is something, something I need to see? Or was there a buzz about that or you just happened, it was just a bunch of friends uh, that happened to, to fall into this, this place at that time? We had our ear to the ground as kids. Yeah. So something was going to happen. And this was in Islington where we lived. This happened. This was at a cinema called Screen on the Green. And the new assistant there had come from our school. He'd left school and he wanted to be in the movie business. And there's a guy called Stephen Woolley. Stephen Woolley produced major motion pictures now. He's part of Palace Pictures and they did the film Mona Lisa and, you know, loads of movies. Oh, but oh. then he was a kid and he told Steve Dagger, who was managing us, who was three, well, he wasn't managing us then. He didn't mm -hmm. manage us. He was just a friend. He was three years older than us. Uh, that The Pistols and the supported by The Clash and The Buscots were all going to be playing at the screen in the green on Saturday night. So I, we went along. There was a buzz in the air that this band was worth seeing. I'd been playing at that time in another band with a bunch of older guys doing sort of a mixture of weird stuff, jazz, farm country, rock, God knows, you know, just anything to play. I mean, they were much, much older than me. And then I saw this show which was extraordinary, you know. I guess it would have been like walking into CBGB's or something right. at the same time and seeing Iggy play or Ramones. And I went into rehearsals the next day and I went, I'm quitting. Yeah. And we went back into school about two weeks later and me and Steve Norman and John Keeble and Tony Hadley formed a band, which eventually became Spano Ballet. But it was, it was, it was that night that changed my life. It's yeah, it's amazing that you can pinpoint this yeah. this moment. They weren't getting played on the radio. I mean, for Holly and I, we were fortunate enough to hear music on K Rock. We heard Spandau Ballet early. You had yeah. you literally you had to go to the clubs to to find out what was happening at the time. Yeah, I mean, L A was very quick on the draw. You know, they uh, you know I think with Richard Blade yeah. and K Rock, you know, he, they were playing our stuff really early on, and and I think there was a sense that you know the West Coast had really picked up on the on on the British vibe that was happening. But I suppose nothing from Britain really 
happened until MTV happened, you know, because it was the, it was the, it was us embracing video and, and being such a visual bunch. Here's an interesting question to you guys. Why do you think at that point, mostly from a Britain made bands where America tended to make solo artists? You know, that apart from the black R&B, which did have bands, sort of white artists tended to be much more solo. You know, there's Bruce Springsteen, there's, there's, you know, I mean, all the singer-songwriters that you guys have. But it was the, it was Britain that seemed to be forming the bands. And I'm thinking it's because we have a very strong working class youth culture and working class kids find greater strength in gangs. And that's why maybe we, we form bands, you know. I, I mean, there's there there's a lot of great, American bands, I think. Come on, I, come on, let's, let's have this fight now, right? Really? Now, okay, you are. Who are you talking about, Holly? Who are you talking about? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I mean. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. The Beach Boys? <laughs> Good, nice, yeah. And they I were mean, big influence on the Beatles, weren't they, as well? You know, they went backwards and forwards. You know, there's there a lot of what was going on there. Well, maybe maybe not quite as influential, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one of my, we have, I mean, R.E.M. is one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, well, that's a little later, though, isn't it? That well, is a okay. little later. But, uh, but for, I mean, during that period, it was the, the British bands that weren't, weren't afraid of, of this, uh, this visual medium. And yeah. that's, that's what they wanted to play. I mean, uh, you know, MTV was starved for, for material. Well, I, uh, and, and I think the reason being is that key success in Britain was through the television. And we'd had a diet right. of, of visuals. So that when I was really small, and I don't remember this, there would have been the program called Oh, oh Boy, then there was a program called Ready, Steady, Go, you know, with, uh, which had all the Beatles on and everybody went on that. And then T Top of the Pops came along and TV went colour. There was another life-changing moment in my life when I saw David Bowie doing Starman on top of the pops. And, you know, I remember thinking, that's it, that's it, that's who I'm going to be. You know, that's who I, I'm going to follow this guy forever. And you know, top of the pops was watched by, now this doesn't sound a lot in American numbers, but it's huge in England. And we don't get anywhere close now with any TV program, but it had 16 million people a week watching it. Your granny knew who number one was. And, and yet it was so visual. And I think because we got that you had to have a visual side to your performance mtv needed that and that really worked for them we had like late night shows i think top of the pops was probably prime time that was everyone was watching it you know we prime had, time you know yeah. just that was seven o'clock in the evening yeah thursday night though right yeah thursday night yeah thursday night <laughs> yeah we had like the midnight special and yeah. you know you had to stay don up late Kirshner. yeah we had the yeah, don Kirshner's rock concert there were there were things that you could see oh, bands like ed, ed sullivan you know in the right. old days like you know right right there was those things holly and i just saw the sparks brothers movie and How is it? oh phenomenal just i mean it's just great but they were they talked specifically about you know they're an american band since the 70s they you know they they were a glam band they were you know a little they were everywhere yeah. because they were so unique they're like they're kind of like a british band so let's yeah. let's let's go to london and, and get discovered and it wasn't until they got on top of the pops that that things started ex exploding when they you know this town ain't big enough for the yeah. both of us yeah which he saying which he sings in an um, english accent right i mean it's, He's to just, my ear, it's that's not really just, an american accent they're from they're from los angeles so it's just yeah. it, you know that's just this town ain't big enough and then it had the you know but it is gonna leave i mean it was so it was so glam it is glam right. and camp at the same time right but we loved it i absolutely loved that record when it came we out. thought they were british when you know for for a moment when they first came out 
So when yeah. we first heard them, which was which was really on K Rock, but they had been playing for so many years before. But I want to say I want to um, talk about this for a second. Go back to the the advent of MTV and K Rock in Los Angeles, because yeah. Dave and I do debate this a lot. Uh, whether we yes, the visuals were very important and broke a lot of bands here on, on MTV when it first started. But K Rock, we got our exposure before MTV to most of these to a lot of these bands, these mm. British bands. Yeah, and 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 I remember, you know, we went over early and we did a big signing at Tower Records, you know, and there were just big queues going down Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. I mean, the truth the truth is that you know, LA was certainly, you know, even though our first time we ever went to America, we went to New York, but LA was still understood lifestyle music. Maybe because of the Beach Boys and all that, but it understood a certain thing about music becoming a lifestyle. You know, and let's face it, New York got MTV almost last. Yeah. So I remember doing an American tour, going to New York, and it was like a compl- going to a completely different country. You know, they were into their sort of art house bands, you know, but quite serious. But I think LA just got what the British bands were doing, mo- most certainly. Hey, I don't want to forget all the stuff in between, guys, you know, <laughs> that you also podcast to, you know, the, you know <laughs> middle America, you know, but, um, but New York was definitely behind. Let me just remind you of when we first went to New York, we didn't take a support band. We wanted to show Americans what we were coming from, what our culture was. So instead of taking a support band or getting one from America, we took a fashion show from London made up of all fashion students from St. Martin's Art College. And they did a fashion show before we went on stage. We did it at the Underground Club, which was just beneath Andy Warhol's interview office offices. It was a big scene when we were there. And... Uh, we got on the front page of Women's Wear Daily or something. You know, it wasn't like, you know, we didn't make any music press. But one of the kids who was a model in the show and was helping out in her fashion show was, was Sade, who didn't know she could sing at the time. And uh, she was part of the 23 of us that all went to America. But anyway, I, I digress. I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm missing the MTV thing. No, that's okay. But, because, I mean, well, let's touch on the fashion thing because that was... Yeah. I mean, we always thought, I, again, I, I was, I refer back to the Dylan Jones book. A lot of people thought you were like upper class and just snooty yeah. little band, you know, like who are these guys, you know, dressed like, uh, you know, like they're above it all, yeah. but that was on purpose or what, or why don't you touch well, on that? Fashion? No, let me tell you, working class kids over here. One of my earliest memories, I grew up living next door to a pub, right? We have a lot of those over I here. I think, yeah, I think you have to, isn't that mandatory? I, and this was an old-fashioned pub full of people who, the generation that had come out of the war, they were pre-rock and roll. So it was an upright piano, and they'd be singing things like, roll out the barrel, you know, like old Cockney right. music hall songs, right? Standards. But one night a month, they had a mod night. Now, this would have been 1966, Six, yeah, something like that. And I'm a six-year-old kid and I can he- hear the scooters coming up the road. You know, scooters are like this, oh, yeah. the, the, the things like in Quadrophini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive. of course. And I remember looking out of my bedroom window and I could see the most incredible looking couples, you know, guys wearing, you know, suits, Italian looking suits and hush puppy shoes. And, you know, I mean, I'm, sh- I- I'm sure I didn't understand it all then, but I just remember how fantastic they looked. And all these scooters lined up brilliantly outside with their mirrors on. You know, these are working class kids with no money, but they spend all of their money, everything they can make, you know, even maybe if they're buying it on hock, you know, they are buying these Italian modernist suits that Miles Davis had worn. That's why they called them mods, because Miles Davis was a modernist jazz modernist. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in the seventies, you know, I, I'm begging my mom to buy Ben Sherman shirts for me. You know, can I, I'm working in a greengrocer's and I'm trying to earn money and all the money I get, I try and buy the latest pair of pants that are really cool and trendy. And it's, it's the soul boy scene that is very hit in the UK and the, in the Southern parts of the UK is black kids and work, white working class kids wearing fantastic high-waisted trousers. You know, I mean, looking like Bowie really from that period, young Americans. So it was normal for white working class kids. I say white because that's, you know, I shouldn't really, generalizing, you know, for all working class kids to spend all of their money looking fabulous. Okay, so let's take the teddy boys, right? Because you say, oh, we look like upper class gentlemen. The teddy boys, which were the rock and roll kids that my dad maybe was just on the cusp of, you know, who had quiffs and this is coming out of the yeah, late like, 50s, early Yeah, 60s. John Lennon was. Well, yeah, teddy yeah. Boy. They were called teddy boys because they wore Edwardian coats. Teddy Edwardian, right? Edward is, Teddy is a shortened mm. for Edward. King Edward. Edwardian coats. They were wearing Edwardian frock coats, which were coats of the upper classes. So that's what they were taking on. They were saying, hey, I'm just as important. So, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's sometimes misleading unless you get the culture of that dressing up that working class kids have always been into here. Also, I, apparently your mom also helped uh, fat, helped you out a lot. You've been, yeah, yeah, yeah there's like some yeah. mohair jacket or what was, what, what, how'd she help you out? What'd she... Oh no, the mohair. I remember my dad taking me to uh, a, a market when I was about 11, I'm begging him to get some mohair trousers, baggy mohair trousers, oh, which, which is sort of suede heads and skin heads wearing. And of course, he took me to some tiny little tailor who was fantastic. And he made these trousers for me. I was very made up. But later when we were at the Blitz Club, I remember, you know, and I'm living at home, my parents, you know, and I said, oh, you know, I really want to, I've imagined these trousers that I want, mom. You know, she was a seamstress, but <laughs> I don't know if she was very good. Um, <laughs> and I drew these trousers on with on a piece of paper. I said, I want a flat fronted and just just cut out i've got i bought this moment this material which was electric blue and i said you know just pegs giant pegs i want so she made these two trousers these trousers for me they were quite tight i've got them on i had to pin them together and but she forgot to put any zippers in them and any flies and i <laughs> i remember sort of going to the club and then going down to the toilet and just struggling to get them off i could get them off and i had to go in a cubicle i won't go any further <laughs> oh please <laughs> yeah. Thanks, mom. So they were they were supportive because you you at a young age you went to to acting. I mean, you studied acting school or went to acting school and okay, yeah, I didn't go to acting school. I went to an acting club. So my parents <laughs> didn't. You know, they sent me. I just went to a normal state school. You know, just a you know school you don't pay for. And um, this wonderful woman called Anna Sher had begun this acting club for ordinary kids because normally acting schools, you know, they cost a lot of money to go to, and they're full of kids who just want to dance on the table and become musical theater stars. But she was doing much more gritty work with local kids and hard kids, really tough kids. And she was introducing them to poetry, to human rights. You know, and, we're, and I'm ten, and I get my first break on TV and I and I, my mum didn't even know I was going to this club. I was using my paper round money to pay for, to get into this club and then suddenly I come home and I said, Mum, I think I'm going to be on television. And she's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and she had to sign a contract and, um, and, I, and I started working quite a lot as an actor with my brother as well, but playing music at the same time. So I had this kind of dual love of acting and music and eventually when I was 16, I went to Anna Sher and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to concentrate on acting anymore because I just really want to be a musician. You had a lot of freedom back then. Ten years mm -hmm. old. I mean, is that part of why you're a musician, or just you just feel like I gotta keep traveling, seeing the world? You just were used to that type of lifestyle. Like I can just leave, 
Leave you know the what? house. I can't imagine it now. I've got I've got four sons. One is one is old and left, and the others I've got a nine year old is my youngest, and I can't imagine right. letting them do what I did. This is the sort of things you did when you were a kid in London and back in the sixties. You know, you could just walk out your door and just go. And I had a key around my neck on a string. I remember the nineteen sixty six World Cup final between England and Germany, and everybody was watching it. And my house was full of my aunts and uncles, and everyone was around watching it in black and white around a little TV. And I'm six years old and I'm bored. I've got no idea what this is about. And I just said, I'm going out. I said, fine. Okay. And I remember walking out and not seeing anybody in the street. It was like it was, it has been in the pandemic or Los Angeles, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm walking down to the local playground where the swings are and the slides and stuff. And sitting there and thinking, where is everybody? That's the kind of freedom that we did have in those days. But but do you think that's what made you? I mean... That's part of who you are now. I mean, me because I think everybody had that freedom at that time. I don't think it was we didn't cloister our children as much. I guess the you know there wasn't as much traffic. You know there wasn't as much news fear. You know, like there's a lot of news fear. You know, so uh, do you let your kids out? (laughs) No. Well, you know, my my twelve year old has started going on the underground now, the tube. You know, the subway. Mm -hmm. Uh, to go to school because we're following him on his phone. Yeah, you know, right. He's 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 nearly there. He's gone there. You know, and I, my sixteen-year-old goes out, and I'm following on, and I'm seeing where he is on my phone. I mean, it's you know, we talks a lot about surveillance, you know, and how terrified we are. But as parents, we are surve- we are giving surveillance to our children. You know, yeah, yeah. what are, we are the surveillors. I don't know what that what the word yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> we made a conscious choice. I mean, not to follow our kids, and we told them we wouldn't follow them as long as they always answered when we texted. We would have no idea if they were telling us the truth about where they were but if they answered immediately i'm not gonna i'm not gonna track you i'm not gonna follow you and yeah. i mean the jury's still out but <laughs> no, the kids are good i feel we're not talking enough about the the 80s with for you guys because we're doing the 60s we've done the 70s we've done now <laughs> we've done a little bit of it don't pigeonhole us man we're we're about everything come on you don't want to <laughs> oh good oh good oh good okay yeah. oh, wait i went uh, okay, okay. Have to raise my hand. Yeah, please raise um, your hand. Floor recognizes Holly. Go ahead. <laughs> so this whole the Nick Mason saucer full of secrets. I never would have get. I mean, not to pigeonhole you. You actually had a passion for this music, or did you just think it would be a fun? Yeah, no, I did. You know, there is a lot of pigeonholing. You know, people think, oh, I know this guy. He sits at home and he plays Nile Rogers licks on his guitar all day long. Right. He's got a few chic records. He's got a David Bowie collection and that's it. But you know, when you're growing up in the seventies, there was in Britain, you bought everything as a kid. You were so excited. So I was buying everything from, from obviously Bowie to Genesis to Pink Floyd to Weather Report to Steely Dan to Fairport Convention. You know, it was everything that was coming my way was exciting and all of it was going in, especially as a musician. But I don't think I was the only one. A lot of people my age were very eclectic. I think, you know, Floyd, as a musician, you know, a a band that I've always played, always enjoyed. And I've known Guy Pratt for years. So Guy Pratt, who who ended up taking over from Roger Waters in in Pink Floyd, he played in a band called Ice House. Yeah. Good Australian 80s group, right? I met Guy in the 80s doing a TV show with Ice House. We became solid friends, known each other for a long time. And I got to know Nick and David Gilmore all through Guy. And so Nick's been a long-term friend. And then when he formed this band, you know, he, he asked me if I wanted to be in it. As I said earlier, he wanted people he could go to dinner with. But I, And I've really enjoyed it. But I think the good thing is we do the early stuff because I think that suits Nick better. And right. 
it's not as purple, you know, it's not as precious, you know. If you do the latest stuff, then everyone goes, oh, you're not playing that Gilmore solo exactly right, you know, and there are so many tribute bands out there doing that. So I think with the with the early stuff, Nick said, you know, let's make this our own, you know, be more free, you know, you play, you don't have to play the guitar that's on the record. And so I've really enjoyed that and I felt liberated by it and I felt, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to play more guitar than I am in Spandau Ballet, I'm a, I, I get to sing lead. And I got to be embraced by a whole different sort of fan base, really, that maybe were a little bit cynical before, but now have really taken me under their wing. So I think it was it was doing that that severed me from my past to the extent that I felt free enough to write this album. You say the hill's too steep to climb So what was, I mean, you're playing David Gilmore's parts. What is it about his guitar playing that's so unique or that that, made, that challenged you as a guitarist? Well, I think growing up, there were a few guitar players that I really liked and, and they were all very melodic. So Mick Ronson was my first love, you know, and, um, and, and, and I love Peter Frampton and Beck and Gilmore. And I think what I like about those players is they're really emotive and they're, they, they do melodic sounding s- solos. Solos sort of went out of fashion in the 80s and maybe apart from when, when Van Halen came along, you know. A great American from, band. With the, the British bands. <laughs> they went out of fashion with punk. So punk said, there could be no more solos. It was only the buzzcocks on board right. that did that two note solo that everyone goes. <laughs> and that was a kind of a pastiche joke. And that was the final so solo. And, and so we never did solos in our in our songs. You know, I think Highly Strung was the closest I ever got to a guitar solo, really. Uh, but live, I used to with Spandau. I'd do a bit more, you know, and Steve plays sax, so he had all the solo stuff. But for me, a guitar is another way of me expressing melody and character and emotion. So I've been really, you know, lucky and thrilled to be able to do a bit more on this record and express myself that way. But but, I completely skirted around your question. What is it about? Yeah, it's about the, um, it's being emotive and and being like a voice. Those guitarists I mentioned, you could turn all their guitar parts into string parts and they would really get you in the heart. Are those actual strings on your, on the album? Yeah, they are. So I did the album I did mostly in lockdown, a lot in lockdown. We had a whole period of time in the summer last year when the 
when the studios opened and I went in and replaced all of the demoed stuff with real stuff and, and we got a string orchestra in as well. And, um, uh, you know, because I, I love working in studios. I prefer that to working at home. Do you arrange that? Do you arrange the strings? Yeah, yeah I arrange with, wow. and, and with, with Toby Chapman. He's the other guy who works for, very closely with me on the record, co-produced with me. He's He played keyboards with Spandau Ballet back in the second half of the 80s, On did all the tours with us. And he's been a longtime friend of mine. And I really, I think we have a very symbiotic relationship musically. And uh, we like working with each other. Well, basically, I'm saying he does whatever I say. <laughs> <laughs> working with each other. Yeah, it's good to have one of those. I need, I need one of those guys. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, Holly, did you and Dave, did you ever come to see a Spandau Ballet gig in the 80s? Of course. And it was, it is driving me crazy. I was thinking about it this morning. I can't remember where. Well, it depends when it was. I mean, we played the Universal Amphitheater quite a few times. So it, <laughs> it, it, it could have been that. It could have been, I think the first place we played was, begins with a W, and I've forgotten what it was. Whiskey? Not the Wilt. Wilton, Wil- Wilton, the Wilton. Wilton, yeah, yeah. I think the Wilton is where we first played, which is where I played actually um, with Nick. With, yeah, when I came up. yeah. Um, but but the I think the yeah, a few places. Um, I want to say it was it must have been eighty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been the Universal Amphitheater. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, cool. cool. You know, and one of those nights where Steve Norman uh, snapped a ligament in his knee as he slid across the stage oh, playing a rather flash saxophone solo. And everyone, I think, heard the pop and the whole audience went quiet. Oh. <laughs> and, oh, uh, and we had to cancel the rest of the American tour. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I guess we got lucky then. <laughs> wow, those, those live shows can get intense. Um, okay, yeah. so, so the one, I was going to say, the one Spandau Ballet show that I know I saw, and I want to question you on this, <laughs> you played Live Aid, okay, which in 1985, you played three yeah. songs, Yeah, obvi- you played True, you played Only When You Leave, two big yeah. hits, you played a song called Virgin from an album that was not released yet, Nobody knows. This is in front of 2 billion people and yeah. you play an unknown song. And I'm, I was like, what, what, please, what is the thought process behind that? Because I well, need I think, to know. I think, you know, we, we made a, we made a lot of good decisions, but we made a few bad ones occasionally. And that was one of the bad ones we made. I, I think it, we didn't quite fully understand. And we just thought, Hey, you know, we've got a new song. We really love this new song. You know, it's, uh, it's better than the old stuff, you know, and maybe we should promote it by doing it. You know, it's a bit like when George Michael did the closing ceremony of the Olympics and he did a new song and everyone's going, please don't, please don't, you know, but he did, you know, and we made that mistake. And, um, the band that really, capitalized on the whole event the most successfully was Queen because they said, we're not even going to do three songs. We're going to do about seven songs. We're going to do a medley and we're going to put, you know, we're going to make this 20 minute, 15, 20 minute medley. And they got that right. They were absolutely right. And it reinvented them because they weren't in a great place when they came to play Live Aid. It was really the reinvention of them. And the other band that had a great success out of Live Aid was U2 because because Bono decided to get up someone from the audience, much to the anger of the rest of the band, and dance with her on stage. Not realizing that was, well, he realized, but the rest of the band didn't, that that was such a great, clever thing to do. And so, yeah, but it, you know, it wasn't our downfall at all. You know, it was, uh, it was a show, you know, we, we're still very proud of doing that. 
that show, you know, and uh, and being part of that, you know, and as a kid growing up in the 70s, loving The Who was another part of my eclectic mix, you know, hanging out backstage with Pete and Pete saying to me, well, why don't you just come and come up with me when we when we play and stand on the side of the stage? And I stood right on the side of the stage watching them play their first show in eight years. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm curious, is there ever a time that that is a good decision for, for any band to play a song like that, an unknown song in such a huge venue? Can you think of a time where something would have come to be a, you know, a monster hit and started in a, you know, the wrong venue? Nah, nah. You know, <laughs> it, it, isn't it always the same at any gig? It's like, now we want to play a few of our new songs or now we're going to play a song off our album and everyone goes, want a beer? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or I'm going to sit now or yeah. I just goes, I, you know, and I, and whatever way you spin it, you know, people, when they get back together in bands or when they've been playing, you know, year, for years and years and years, you know, no matter how many new albums you bring out, the songs they want to hear are those ones that come from when you were in your pomp. And that era of being in your pomp, I think, is when you're roughly the same age as your audience right. and none of you have children, right? So so it's that pre-family, pre-settled time and the band represents you on a bigger stage. And, and uh, those songs, whatever songs you have hits with then, are your songs forever. Just that general age when everything is ahead of you and you can really dream and you haven't failed yet. You know, that's when you're in a band and, you know, it's blissful. We started to argue a bit towards the end. I mean, I found the pressure really hard with having to write the next album all the time. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure in that. I put it upon myself, most of all. I think, you know, we obviously, you know, we had our big breakup at the end of the 80s. But that had been, we'd been professional for 10 years. That is actually quite a long time. When you think the Beatles went from 63 to 70, that's all, you know, professionally. And then they all hated each other after that. They'd done everything. We had quite a good run. I mean, not as good a run as Duran Duran, obviously. <laughs> or you two just keep going and going. I mean, bands who make that. Although Duran have had their fallings out and breakups and come back together. So it's not unusual. It's funny from a, to hear from an artist perspective. You said that's that's quite a long time. And I know it's a long time, especially living the day-to-day -day existence. But for the music, for the people receiving the music, you always leave us wanting more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a long time creatively to be, because to, to, you have a kind of perfect balance at one moment in your career where everyone accepts the hierarchy, whatever that may be, and the chemical balance of he's the songwriter, he's the guy who does that interview, he's the guy, you know, and everyone's happy in their little role. And that role happens to be the perfect role for you because you're making the best music you've ever made and you're selling the most records. And suddenly that's bound to go out of kilter as other voices come in and people decide they want more here and they don't want to be considered that way anymore. And, and the chemistry shifts and it's really hard then to continue as a creative unit. Yeah, yeah, you can't pigeonhole these people. I guess that's our theme of, of today's podcast. You did get the band together was it everyone? I, I can't remember. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah, it was everyone, I, you know. I mean, so, so you know, we'd been through a lot of hell, you know, that we'd, we'd been in court, you know, we went, we went through a lot of stuff that a band should, shouldn't go through but do go through. You know, I guess a few years later, this would be 2009, I was putting together a DVD of, of, of a live show that the band had done and, and I was so thrilled by what I was watching and hearing. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of people, you know, I, I wanted to go back to that moment, you know, and thinking we had... We were such a great live band that re and all that people were left with were the records and the records weren't us at our best. And so 
I spent five years trying to get the band back together. It was easier with some people and much harder with others. And uh, you, as you can see in the Soul Boys of the Western World film, you know, that's the, the moment when Tony walks into the room, into the rehearsal room, you yeah. know, he's whistling and playing it cool, but but inside, you know, finding it, everyone was finding it hard. But when we struck up the music, you can see in that video, you know, we, we all got together. I think, you know, we're playing something like I Fly For You. I think it was... Uh, through the barricades and we all come together in this little circle and we're playing and there of course there's nostalgia in it for us there's kinship there's friendship there's a history that only the five of us would ever ever understand because we went through so much together that nobody else my wife of 20 odd years no one can understand what we did And that was a good tour to do, that, that comeback tour 2009. The trouble is, is that you can only live that kind of fantasy for a while and then eventually reality starts to bite and you, you know, you, you start to think, you know, you drift away again. But, but it was an incredible comeback, that first one. Yeah, Holly and I have talked a lot about it. Just when bands get back together, not to have it be nostalgic, but to, to have it still oh sound still sound fresh you know like these these songs were important back in the day the, the band is finding something new in in each performance and it's yeah. still it's still vital and still it's still making an impact when you hear it in a live setting i think it's important to make new music you know and and even if even if there's that moment when people go do you want to get a beer you know yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's important to make new music to yeah. go through the process of some creativity together you're not just you know because also you know don't forget you know tony had been doing these songs in his own right with his own band for quite a long time and so he came back with a whole different kind of style and doing that and we what we were trying to do is to remind ourselves of what what our style was and what we had done. But I think unless you're willing to go and do what Duran do, which is make brand new albums and push yourself creatively, then I don't see the point in just getting back together for reunion shows. You know, I, I, I'm, and I don't think at the moment Spandau are, are willing enough for, to do that because Tony wants to do his solo stuff. And I'm now in the, in the, in a mindset of wanting to do my solo stuff. And, you know, and, and, and the other guys in the band, I mean, Martin is hugely busy over here doing every, he's on every TV show all the time doing stuff. So I think we're happy where we are right now, but, uh, you you never know. Any interviews you, you read with you, it sounds, it does sound final. We're not going back to Spandau Ballet. Yeah, I think I've got to say that to myself because I can't be creative going forward unless I've said goodbye to that, you know, and, and I otherwise I'm thinking, oh, this song, that would be good for Tony. I'll put that away. <laughs> but I don't want to be of that mindset right now, you know, so and I think there's a lot of difficulty, you know, of personal stuff 
that you know isn't unusual you know that that you think when you when you're on the road you're not just on stage for those minutes that you the fans see you you are traveling together living together doing interviews together you know you are having breakfast together and you've got to be willing to go through all of that with those people that maybe you know you've got just a too much too much issues with you know or not even issues now but had issues you know like getting a marriage back together because because your neighbors loved it when you were together <laughs> and you just knew each other so well so you think it's going to be comfortable and then yeah 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 i don't want to undermine anyone by that you know and i hope people don't take it that way I'm I'm halfway through writing another album. I want to carry on doing that. I want to make another record and I'm breaking a new act at 61, right? Yeah. So I'm hoping I can come out and play some shows at some stage. Good for you. Yeah. I, I think we've taken enough of your time. <laughs> thank, thank you, Dave. I'm not sure we have. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to yeah. see your lovely smiling faces. Really happy yeah. people. I'm, it's so nice. I picked up all your vibe. I'm going to take it with me. Oh, wonderful. Great to meet you. Good luck with the show. And uh, and I'll see you next time. Yeah, really thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, congratulations on the album. It's uh, we're, thank We really you. love it. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Thank you. All the best. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Gary. You Bye. too. Bye. Bye. Gary Kemp, ladies and gentlemen, that was phenomenal. He is such a great guest and he's so articulate. Such a pleasure to talk to. Also, fellow podcaster. He's like our peer. We're, uh, you know, we're in Sapatigo, <laughs> right? Sapatigo. Dave, that's off. Oh, that's so great. And yes, yeah, he's his so, uh, his podcast we talked about with the Rock and Tours, which I do love the name. Feel a kinship with him in that regard. Yeah, so a couple recommendations. Check out Rock on Tours. This is Gary Kemp's podcast. He's interviewed people that we want to interview. So we're hopefully we'll uh, we'll get a chance to to talk to, with some of the people Gary's talked to. He also has a solo album that is out now and it's called In Solo. I hope he'll come back and I can't wait to see him when he's touring. And thank you. We have we have a few people to thank for helping get this episode together. We have Sophia at Dagger Entertainment, Danny Bush, Graham Master, and we are so grateful for connecting us with Gary Kemp. So thank you guys. Uh, we can also thank Luke Berlin, Joe Ainge, Billie Jean Cirillo, and of course Steve Dagger, manager. Uh, it was really wonderful to get someone like Gary Kemp onto our podcast. If you loved what you heard, we've got plenty more. So please subscribe to our podcast. If this is your first time, welcome aboard. What difference does it make? A proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. A very proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 